Welcome to the Fairview Church Podcast. At Fairview Church, we are dedicated to reaching our neighbors with the true freedom found in full surrender to Christ. To find out more about our church, including service times, location, and current sermon series, please visit us online at www.myfairview.org. These things I have spoken to you, that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you, that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. But now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this morning, and we are in John chapter 16, we have been walking through this narrative in the book of John, starting really in 14, which is known as kind of like the upper room discourse. This is a uh, time in which Jesus uh, washes the disciples' feet. He is uh, preparing them for what is to come, and he has uh, been in a sense, trying to describe to them not only some encouragement, but also some warnings about the uh, upcoming reality of his death. For example, we see Jesus tell them things about what really it is like to experience some of the worst things about being a human. We, excuse me, we see Jesus, for example, tell them that he's going to be betrayed, rejected. He knows he's going to be, be tortured and be killed. You see the anguish that fills the disciples' hearts and their minds at the reality that Jesus is going to leave them. And with each time that they are given a a solemn warning or they are disheartened or their hearts are troubled with anxiety, Jesus gives them something to look forward to, something that is amazing, something that they can find encouragement in. And as we finish out this upper room discourse, what's interesting is that 
He's about to tell them one of the most painful things that they're going to hear, but yet he gives him one of the best encouragements that he can give them, and that is the actual spirit of the living God being with them. And so this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to walk through this text, imagining for a moment we're the disciples and we've heard this for the first time. Because on this side of the cross, it's easy for us to think about how Jesus has risen from the dead, how at Pentecost, the spirit comes down to indwell believers. It's easy for us to kind of look back on this and think to ourselves, oh yeah, that was a story that had happened. And yet this was a real life conversation that happened over several hours. These were real disciples following Jesus. They had no indication of the cross. They had no idea what was about to happen. Happened. They didn't know that when Jesus died on that cross, that three days later, he's going to rise from the grave. Even though they were told these things, they didn't believe it and they were disheartened. They were hearing this in real time. And Jesus was saying to them, listen, there's going to be a time when you are put out of the synagogues, when people are going to kill you and think they're offering service to God. And to make matters even more discouraging for them, he says, listen, I'm even going to leave too. That must have been so heartbreaking to the disciples. How could they, after being told all these different things already over the past several chapters, even with the encouragements that, that uh, Jesus gives them, how could they find any type of hope? And this is where Jesus then offers them the greatest thing. And he says, listen, I'm going to send one that's better. I'm going to send the advocate the helper, the comforter. He says one that, he says, I'm gonna send someone who's an advantage to you, that it's actually better for you to not have me here in the flesh, but instead for me to bring and to send the spirit. It had to be very confusing for them. It had to be very challenging for them. But I hope what we see from the very beginning is we see Jesus' heart behind all of this. His heart for his disciples is very simple, and it's something that we teach from a very young age, and it's this, that Jesus cares. Jesus really does care about them. So much so that later on in verse 12, he says, listen, I'm not even telling you some of the things that I could tell you just because your hearts are too burdened. But he cares, and he's going to tell them everything that they need to know so that they are prepared for what's coming, but also so that they can be encouraged to live out this life that God has given to them. In fact, when we look at chapter 16, this is going to be in a culmination of what chapters 14 has been pushing towards until we get to the priestly prayer in chapter 17. And so when we look at this, we want to remember God's heart in this. And he tells them in the first verse, he has spoken all of these things so that they would not be made to stumble. He doesn't want them to stumble. Now, what could stumbling be? Well, in life, there's really two types of stumbling. I've done it before myself in both. The first type of stumbling that we see in life is stumbling over something that you cannot see. Anybody ever done that before? Yeah, I'm gonna tell a story and some of you parents in this room may be able to relate. It's nighttime, the boys are quiet, sleeping in their bed and a toy goes off in their room. I don't know how, it's on, don't even care. I just know that it needs to be turned off before my boys wake up. 
And so I run upstairs, I open the door very quietly, and I start to walk in their room so that I can be as most quiet and discreet as possible. I don't want my boys to wake up, but unbeknownst to me, they have been playing with Legos and they're all over the floor. I step on one. I cry for help, excruciating pain. You stumble, you fall, you curse the Legos. Why? Because they hurt. They're torture devices if they're not used in the proper way. Now, here's the deal. We all know what it's like to stumble in the dark. When you weren't expecting something, you feel the pain, you react, you shriek. You try to find something to hold you up so that you can focus your gaze on the floor now just to make sure you don't step on another one. This is a type of stumbling that Jesus has already addressed in this text prior to this. That's not the type of stumbling that Jesus is mentioning here. The type of stumbling that he uses here is a stumbling over an object or something that you can actually already see in front of you. He tells them, There is going to be a time when this thing's going to happen and when this thing's going to happen. Don't be surprised when this is going to happen to you and when this is going to... He is making it very clear that the type of stumbling that he has been talking about is a type of stumbling that you can expect, that you can anticipate. And Jesus is not telling them, hey, just be careful of this and, you know, be disheartened about it. No, he is caring for them by saying, you need to expect this, so you need to prepare for this. The type of stumbling that Jesus is talking about here is more of a stumbling like when you're running the hurdles in track and field. When you're running and you are, you're having to jump over that hurdle. Now, those are like this tall, okay? They're upright frames. And for someone who's five six. I can't normally do them that well, all right? But here's the deal. You run as fast as you can, and you have to jump. And sometimes your leg will hit the top of that frame, and it may stay up, but you start to wobble on the ground. Sometimes you run, and you hit it so hard. I've watched games where it like takes out all the hurdles in that row because you've hit the hurdles so badly. The type of stumbling that Jesus is talking about is a type of running where you have to run and participate. And when you get to that hurdle, you need to jump. Don't stumble. It's ahead of you. You know it's expected. Have you put in the work in order to jump over it? To me, there's two types of runners in this life. There are casual runners And there's runners that want to win. 1 Corinthians 9, 24, Paul tells us this. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. See, Paul's understanding of running this race is that we are to run in such a way where we'll actually obtain the prize. There are no such things as casual Christians. No such thing as casual Christianity and living it out. If you are a casual a casual runner, you are not going to be able to jump these hurdles that are in front of you. 
Several years ago, I, want, I got caught up in like this fad. People do it all the time, but it's like the 5K thing. You know, you want to run a 5K, right? Some of you actually enjoy it, and I don't understand it. All right, here's the deal. When I was in eighth grade, my parents put me in cross country, and I came in last every single meet. Yeah, talk about my self-esteem being really low at the end of the season. It was awful. I don't like running. I hate it. But a couple of years ago, I was like, oh, I need to get back into running. I want to become healthier. So I downloaded two separate apps to run. The first app was like a general app. It was like Nike or something. But there was this guy on there and he had like this really cool voice. And he was like, hey, start running this next minute. And so I would start running. He's like, slow things down, you know. And like, he just was really calming. But there was never like sense of urgency to actually run to like get better. So I downloaded a second app, the Zombie Run app. Now, let me tell you about this thing. It's amazing. All right, it's connected to your GPS on your phone. And every time you run, you run a mission to collect water, supplies, all these different things. And in the game, there's like a game slash running thing. You can actually build up your base. It's really cool. But anyways, so every time you run, you have a mission. And if you run too slow, this is what happens. You start to hear this. And the zombies are on you. And if you run slow enough, they kill you in the game and you have to start all over again. That's my type of running app. All right. Nothing gives you a jolt of energy like thinking you're about to be devoured by zombies. Now, here's the deal. Paul is more in line with the zombie app than he is with the other one. We have to run in such a way there's urgency as if our life depended on it. And so when he's talking with his disciples, he's saying, listen, the day is going to be very hard in front of you. It's going to be very difficult for you. But if you're just casually living this life following me, you will not survive. You have to run to obtain that prize. You have to run And while we are going to see the greatest encouragement is the spirit with us. The spirit is with us to empower us and encourage us. But we actually have to run that race. The spirit doesn't pick up our leg one leg at a time. We actually have to do it. But the spirit gives us the energy to be able to accomplish what God has called us to do. And so he tells his disciples that the reality is this, that someday... They're going to be kicked out of the synagogue. And there are going to be people who are going to persecute them, believing that they have this just cause to do so. For us, we may not be able to understand the implications of this. Today, if you were to leave this church and not want to come back, which would be very sad for me, I know everyone else would be sad, but let's just say that happened. You could go to the other hundreds of churches in Lebanon, or whatever it is around this area, Mount Juliet, Wilson County, with relative anonymity. No one's gonna know who you are. But for this day, synagogues were regional. They were family, right? If, if they were kicked out of the synagogue, that means not only the place of worship that they belonged to was gone, but their commerce, the relationships that they had, all the things that they worked towards in life, their family name, all gone. What he is telling is the disciples, you had to be prepared to lose everything if you want to follow me. And while today we don't have 
a similar structure, here's what I know. Is that often many of us don't really take the time to consider the price of following Jesus. Sure, we may not lose everything here. There are parts of the world where Christians still lose everything for following him. But here, sometimes we get nervous that we don't get invited to certain outings because we're a Christian. Or maybe we feel awkward because we want to tell our friends, hey, I don't like that type of joking because we're afraid how they're going to look at us. Or it might be a couple who wants to live a pure uh, relationship before they get married and their friends think they're crazy. But that is a sacrifice that we make for the Lord because we want to run this race well. But Jesus warns them that this is a reality that's going to happen. There's going to be people who are going to persecute you and they're going to believe they have a just cause to do it. So don't stumble. Expect everything that's coming your way. We should never expect that people will stumble over the gospel. Paul tells us this, that that the gospel is an offense to the world. We shouldn't be nervous or, or scared or or have fear that this is going to happen. We shouldn't be surprised that this is going to happen. Jesus tells us it's going to happen. So what do we do? We prepare. We read our scriptures. We pray. We spend time with God. We fast. We learn, we, we learn how to be self-disciplined and self-controlled. We encourage one another. We put in the time so that as we run and we get to that hurdle that we know we cannot overcome, the spirit is with us to to give us strength to overcome those things. And this is his, his beautiful reminder to these disciples. Because in the back of their mind is a few verses from the Old Testament. Some from Ezekiel chapter 36 and some from Joel 2 that talk about a time when the kingdom of God arrives, the spirit of the living God is going to indwell in the sons and daughters of God. See, back in the day, the spirit was relatively positioned in the synagogue. That's where the presence of God was. But now, what we see at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 For those who have professed faith in Christ, that same spirit lives inside of us. We are the temple of the living God. And what's beautiful about this is that the disciples were probably thinking to themselves, I can give up my family. I can give up my relationships. I can give up my social status. I can give up all of those things for you, Lord. But where am I going to go to worship? And Jesus is very simple here. He says... Just be where you're at. Because the spirit, I'm sending the spirit, the the helper who is going to be with you. It's not relative or specifically into one place, but it is with every believer. This is the greatest encouragement he can give them. And so how does the spirit encourage us then? In verse five, he tells us he's gonna go away. It's to our advantage. And then he says in verse seven, a helper and a comforter. That he's gonna send us someone to help us and who's going to comfort us. And he does this in a few different ways. The first way he does this is that the Holy Spirit convicts. 
In verse 8, he says this, when he has come, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, and uh, in verse 11, and of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. When we are living lives that are rebellious against the Lord that are not for our benefit, and we feel something, it's not just a feeling. It's the Holy Spirit actually convicting us and trying to communicate with us. It's not just this arbitrary feeling. It is the Spirit of God trying to move and expose and convince us of the things in our lives. But he does so that we can live a life that is devoted to Jesus. On one hand, the Spirit convicts the sinner, but he's also, though, the defender of the righteous. In Ephesians 1.14, it says this, The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance, which is applied towards our redemption as God's own people, resulting in the honor of God's glory. What this means is that he is the advocate for the believer in Christ, sealing them in righteousness until the day of the judgment. But on the other hand, he convicts the world of sin and is the counsel of, of prosecution. Look at what F.F. F. Bruce uh, writes. The spirit is the advocate or helper of those who believe in Jesus, their counsel for the defense. But in relation to unbelievers, to the godless world, he acts as a counsel for the prosecution. It's important to have the spirit of God to defend rather than to convict. The spirit of God convicts us of our sins so that we will follow through in truth and follow him. But he also convicts the world. How do we know that things are bad in the world? How do we know what sin looks like? It's the spirit. That's how we know. The second thing that we see him convict in verse 8 through 11 is that he convicts of righteousness. He convicts the world about who Christ is and what he has done. I think it's interesting today that when you look at society and you ask them about Jesus, they may say that they don't believe in him. But what's interesting is that there's a general acceptance that he was a good person. They'll say something like, well, I thought he taught good things. He was very loving. He was very kind. The perception of Jesus is really good. In some faith, uh, faith traditions, he's a prophet. In others, he's just one of many other gods. But regardless, when you ask society who Jesus is, there is a positive outlook on who he is. And that's interesting to me. Because when you read the accounts of scripture and what they portrayed Jesus as, the accusations of the time were this. He was reviled as a liar. Some said he was a fraud. They believed he was the illegitimate child of Mary and Joseph. They called him demon-possessed, a blasphemous criminal, and even accused him of wanting to destroy the Jewish law. So while Jesus was walking with his disciples, he wasn't someone to be envied. He was targeted, ridiculed, belittled, and while for a short time on Palm Sunday, everyone loved him, by Friday, everyone was calling for his execution. How 
Can someone like that then be seen as something wonderful, a good teacher or whatever it is, be seen in good light for the past 2,000 years since this, has, this, since this happened? It doesn't make sense. Someone like this, you would expect just to be erased from the pages of history. But you know what we have? We have a God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit on the third day. And we have a God who then uses that Holy Spirit to convict the world about what Jesus has done. And so while many in this world will never bow their knee to Jesus on this side of heaven, they see the good things that he has done. That's actually an act of the Holy Spirit to convict the world of righteousness. I think that's interesting. But you know what this means for us on a practical basis? When we tell someone about Jesus, it has far less to do about the words that we say and it has everything about what the Holy Spirit wants to do. We don't have to be nervous about those things. When our kids come to us with questions and we don't know how to answer them, we can rest that the Holy Spirit's there with us. And guess what? If we don't have the answer at that time, the Spirit doesn't want us to know the answer at that time. He wants us to search it out. But sometimes he does. How many of you have ever been in a moment of desperate need or, or, or there's some sorts of situation and you remember like a Bible verse from like 10, 15 years ago that you haven't even read since then? That's the Holy Spirit. How many of us have like listened to something on the radio or something and a Bible verse comes up and like later that day, there's like a perfect situation for something like that? It's the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is using these things to remind us, to convict us, to tell and to testify the world about who he is. The next thing he tells us in verse 11 is that he convicts the judgment of Satan himself. He tells us the ruler of this world is going to be judged. One author writes this, the world, the prince of it is judged. To adhere to it rather than to, to Christ is to cling to a doomed cause, a sinking ship. Listen, if you are in this room this morning and you have clung to the lies that Satan offers, a better life, a more complete life, a life unhinged by authority, you need to know this, that this is clinging to a way of life that is ultimately doomed. What he wants to tell the disciples is this. The, the battle, everything, it's already won. It's already over. The things that you experience now by following me, those hurdles, those difficulties, the things that you can expect, the things that you cannot see, it pairs in in comparison to the fact that Jesus has already won. Satan is going to judge, or excuse me, Satan is going to be judged by the Spirit. It's over. And so while we experience these afflictions, we can have full confidence that we are on the winning side. How much more confidence could these disciples need that they're on the winning side, even as bleak as it was going to be? All of these disciples, except for one, even though he went through a lot of torture, is going to die a martyr's death. You cannot be casual and be a martyr. You cannot endure torture and be a martyr. You know what allows you to endure torture? Knowing the truth of the gospel and knowing that you're on the right side. Knowing that in the end, 
God is the one who wins. J.C. Ryle paraphrases, paraphrases this section like this. After the day of Pentecost, the Holy Ghost, the great advocate of me and my people, shall come into this world with such a mighty power that he shall silence, convince, and stop the mouths of your enemies and oblige them, however unwillingly, to think of me and my cause very differently from what they think now. In particular, he shall convince them of their own sin, of my righteousness, and of the victory which I have won over Satan. He shall, in short, be a crushing advocate whom the world shall not be able to resist or gainsay. The Spirit is the one who convicts. He's also the one who guides. In verse 13, the Spirit of truth has come. He will guide you into all truth. This is truth that relates to spiritual practice and belief. The Spirit is the one who enlightens our minds to the truths of Christ found in God's word. So what could be some of those truths that we need to hold on this morning? 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us this. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This tells us that as we walk this Christian life and becomes more like Jesus, who's responsible for that? The Spirit. Romans 8, 26 says, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he searches the heart, and he searches the hearts, uh, knows the mind of the Spirit is, because he, excuse me, uh, he's too, too, I'm getting lost in my, my own words here. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for he, did not, he does not know how to pray as he should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us, groaning too deep for words. What this tells us is this, when we are lost, when we don't know what to say, when we are just so discouraged and don't even know where to begin, guess who is there for us? The Spirit is there for us. Romans eight sixteen, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And to me, this is one of the most comforting because when we feel like we've done messed up so bad that God can't love us anymore, What's the reassuring voice that tells you that you're a child of God? It's the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2 says this, Now we have received not from the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. He reveals to us the truth. Listen, I am a student pastor. You know what that means? It means I tell our students the same thing 20 times, and then we go to camp, they hear from somebody else, and they're like, I've never heard this before. That's what that means. But seriously, the spirit reveals in his own time. So I can say all the things that I want. But sometimes students, sometimes adults, we need to hear the same thing from somebody else. And it's in that moment that the spirit convicts and brings the truth. And that's comforting to me. Lastly, what we see from this text is that the Holy Spirit is the one that glorifies Verse 14, he will glorify me for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. Notice here that the spirit is at work as, we, as, he, as we've mentioned in making much of who Jesus is. He's the one that glorifies Jesus. He's the one that wants to see people proclaim and exalt what Jesus has done. 
See, John 16 is preparing these disciples for the reality of the world. They're going to be persecuted, targeted, be made fun of. There's going to be no lack of of obstacles that are going to be in front of them. It's going to be ever-present. But Jesus tells them, if you rely on the Spirit... If, if you run the race that is set before you and rely on the spirit, then you can overcome all of those things. And in turn, that gives glory to, to the Lord, gives glory to God. But here's the, the deeper question that kind of hit home for me this week as I was reading through this, thinking about the disciples' experience and how they would have heard this and the anxiety and frustration and even the encouragement they would have experienced. Here's the driving question that came to me this week, and it's this. Jesus tells us that he's sending us a helper and a comforter and an advocate. But what does that say about me when I live in such a way that doesn't need the Spirit's help or the Spirit's comfort? See, I think as Christians, we can put ourselves in positions where we're always comfortable. Who needs a comforter if you're comfortable? Some of us put ourselves in positions to make sure that we're not going to experience any type of difficulty or adversity in our life. Well, who needs an advocate if you're always in a safe space? The reality is the Spirit of God, as we see throughout all of the scriptures, often moves us into places where we have to depend on the Spirit. We find ourselves in times where we need that comforter and we need to embrace it. There are times where the Spirit will tell us to go somewhere, to talk to somebody about a certain thing, and we must go. We might be scared. We might be afraid. We might be nervous about it, but you know what? We have an advocate. We have a helper that is there for us. So for me, thinking about running this race and stumbling and all these different things, I just came to this conclusion this week. I have no idea what it's like to be a disciple like these disciples. I don't know what it's like to be like this. Because we don't experience the same things that they experienced. But I do know this, that I want to be prepared. I want to be ready. If ever this ever comes to fruition where I may experience some of the sacrifice they had to give up, I want to be ready to say, Lord, bring it on. Spirit, I depend on you. Because this is the reality. All of 14 through 16 and on are all connected. They're all about really the same thing. Do you have a faith that is deep? Do you have a faith that is willing to rely on the Holy Spirit when difficulty comes? You've been here for the past few weeks. You know this has been the main thing we talked about almost every week. But he gives us this encouragement. Right before he goes into this priestly prayer that's so beautiful, he gives us this encouragement. I am sending you the Spirit. You have the Spirit. Do we believe that we have the Spirit to be with us in these moments? Because when we have the Spirit, we have everything that we need even if we lose everything like the disciples. 
Thank you for listening to the Fairview Church Podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit us online at www.myfairview.org.